This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Miscellany of Men by G. K. Chesterton. Section 4 The Sun Worshipper. There is a shrewd warning to be given to all people who are in revolt, and in the present state of things I think all men are revolting in that sense, except a few who are revolting in the other sense. But the warning to socialists and other revolutionaries is this, that as sure as fate, if they use any argument which is atheist or materialistic, that argument will always be turned against them at last by the tyrant and the slave. Today I saw one too common socialist argument turned Tory, so to speak, in a manner quite startling and insane. I mean that modern doctrine, taught, I believe, by most followers of Karl Marx, which is called the materialist theory of history. The theory is roughly this, that all the important things in history are rooted in an economic motive. In short, history is a science, a science of the search for food. Now, I desire in passing only to point out that this is not merely untrue, but actually the reverse of the truth. It is putting it too feebly to say that the history of man is not only economic. Man would not have any history if he were only economic. The need for food is certainly universal, so universal that it is not even human. Cows have an economic motive, and apparently, I dare not say what ethereal delicacies may be in the cow, only an economic motive. The cow eats grass anywhere, and never eats anything else. In short, the cow does fulfill the materialist theory of history. That is why the cow has no history. A history of cows would be one of the simplest and briefest of standard works. But if some cows thought it wicked to eat long grass, and persecuted all who did so, if the cow with the crumpled horn were worshipped by some cows and gored to death by others, if cows began to have obvious moral preferences over and above a desire for grass, then cows would begin to have a history. They would also begin to have a highly unpleasant time which is perhaps the same thing. The economic motive is not merely not inside all history, it is actually outside all history. It belongs to biology or the science of life. That is, it concerns things like cows that are not so very much alive. Men are far too much alive to get into the science of anything. For them we have made the art of history. To say that human actions have depended on economic support is like saying that they have depended on having two legs. It accounts for action, but not for such varied action. It is a condition, but not a motive. It is too universal to be useful. Certainly a soldier wins the Victoria Cross on two legs. He also runs away on two legs. But if our object is to discover whether he will become a VC or a coward, the most careful inspection of his legs will yield us little or no information. In the same way, a man will want food if he is a dreamy romantic tramp, 
and will want food if he is a toiling and sweating millionaire. A man must be supported on food as he must be supported on legs. But cows, who have no history, are not only furnished more generously in the matter of legs, but can see their food on a much grander and more imaginative scale. A cow can lift up her eyes to the hills and see uplands and peaks of pure food. Yet we never see the horizon broken by crags of cake or happy hills of cheese. So far the cow, who has no history, seems to have every other advantage. But history, the whole point of history, precisely is that some two-legged soldiers ran away while others of similar anatomical structure did not. The whole point of history precisely is some people like poets and tramps chance getting money by disregarding it while others such as millionaires will absolutely lose money for the fun of bothering about it. There would be no history if there were only economic history. All the historical events have been due to the twists and turns given to the economic instinct by forces that were not economic. For instance, this theory traces the French War of Edward III to a quarrel about the French wines. Anyone who has even smelt the Middle Ages must feel fifty answers springing to his lips. But in this cause one will suffice. There would have been no such war then, if we all drank water like cows. But when one is a man, one enters the world of historic choice. The act of drinking wine is one that requires explanation. So is the act of not drinking wine. But the capitalist can get much more fun out of the doctrine. When strikes were splitting England right and left a little while ago, an ingenious writer humorously describing himself as a liberal said that they were entirely due to the hot weather. The suggestion was eagerly taken up by other creatures of the same kind, and I really do not see why it was not carried farther and applied to other lamentable uprisings in history. Thus it is a remarkable fact that the weather is generally rather warm in Egypt, and this cannot but throw light on the sudden and mysterious impulses of the Israelites to escape from captivity. The English strikers use some barren republican formula, and as the definitions of the medieval schoolmen, some academic shibboleth about being free men and not being forced to work except for a wage accepted by them. Just in the same way, the Israelites in Egypt employed some dry scholastic quibble about the extreme difficulty of making bricks with nothing to make them. But whatever fantastic intellectual excuses they may have put forward for their strange and unnatural conduct in walking out when the prison door was open, there can be no doubt that the real cause was the warm weather. Such a climate notoriously also produces delusions and horrible fancies such as Mr. Kibling describes. And it was while their brains were disordered by the heat that the Jews fancied that they were founding a nation, that they were led by a prophet, and in short that they were going to be of some importance in the affairs of the world. Now can the historical student fail to note that the French monarchy was pulled down in August, and that August is a month in summer? In spite of all this, however, I have some little difficulty myself 
in accepting so simple a form of the materialist theory of history. At these words, our Marxian socialists will please bow their heads three times. And I rather think that exceptions might be found to the principle. Yet it is not chiefly such exceptions that embarrass my belief in it. Now my difficulty is rather in accounting for the strange coincidence by which the shafts of Apollo split us exclusively along certain lines of class and of economics. I cannot understand why all solicitors did not leave off soliciting, all doctors leave off doctoring, all judges leave off judging, all benevolent bankers leave off lending money at high interest, and all rising politicians leave off having nothing to add to what their right honourable friend told the House about eight years ago. The quaint theoretic plea of the workers that they were striking because they were ill paid seems to receive a sort of wild and hasty confirmation from the fact that, throughout the hottest weather, judges and other persons who are particularly well paid showed no disposition to strike. I have to fall back, therefore, on metaphysical fancies of my own, and I continue to believe that the anger of the English poor, to steal a phrase from Sir Thomas Brown, came from something in a man that is other than the elements, and that owes no homage unto the sun. When comfortable people come to talking stuff of that sort, it's really time that the comfortable classes made a short summary and confession of what they have really done with the very poor Englishman. The dawn of the medieval civilization found him a serf, which is a different thing from a slave. He had security, though the man belonged to the land rather than the land to the man. He could not be evicted, his rent could not be raised. In practice it came to something like this, that if the Lord rode down his cabbages, he had not much chance of redress, but he had the chance of growing more cabbages. He had direct access to the means of production. Since then, the centuries in England have achieved something different, and something which, fortunately, is perfectly easy to state. There is no doubt about what we have done. We have kept the inequality, but we have destroyed the security. The man is not tied to the land as in serfdom, nor is the land tied to the man as in peasantry. The rich man has entered into an absolute ownership of farms and fields, and in the modern industrial phrase he has locked out the English people. They can only find an acre to dig or a house to sleep in by accepting such competitive and cruel terms as he chooses to impose. Well, what would happen then over the larger parts of the planet, parts inhabited by savages? Savages, of course, would hunt and fish. That retreat for the English poor was perceived, and that retreat was cut off. Game laws were made to extend over districts like the Arctic snows or the Sahara. The rich man had property over animals he had no more dreamed of than a governor of Roman Africa had dreamed of a giraffe. He owned all the birds that passed over his land. He might as well have owned all the clouds that passed over it. If a rabbit ran from Smith's land to Brown's land, it belonged to Brown, as if it were his pet dog. The logical answer to this would be simple. Anyone stung on Brown's land ought to be able to prosecute Brown for keeping a dangerous wasp without a muzzle. Thus the poor man was forced to be a tramp along the roads, and asleep in the open. That retreat was perceived, and that retreat was cut off. 
a landless man in England can be punished for behaving in the only way that a landless man can behave, for sleeping under a hedge in Surrey or on a seat on the embankment. His sin is described with a hideous sense of fun as that of having no visible means of subsistence. The last possibility, of course, is that upon which all human beings would fall back if they were sinking in a swamp or impaled on a spike or deserted on an island. It is that of calling out for pity to the passer-by. That retreat was perceived, and that retreat was cut off. A man in England can be sent to prison for asking another man for help in the name of God. You have done all these things and by so doing you have forced the poor to serve the rich and to serve them on the terms of the rich. They have still one weapon left against the extremes of insult and unfairness. That weapon is their numbers and the necessity of those numbers to the working of that vast and slavish machine. And because they still had this last retreat, which we call the strike, because this retreat was also perceived, there was talk of this retreat being also cut off. Whereupon the workmen became suddenly and violently angry, and struck at your boards and committees here and there, wherever they could. And you opened on them the eyes of owls and said, It must be the sunshine. You could only go on saying, The sun, the sun. That was what the man in Ibsen said when he had lost his wits. The Wrong Incendiary I stood looking at the coronation procession. I mean the one in Beaconsfield, not the rather elephantine imitation of it which I believe had some success in London, and I was seriously impressed. Most of my life is passed in discovering with a deathly surprise that I was quite right. Never before have I realized how right I was in maintaining that the small area expresses the real patriotism. The smaller the field, the taller the tower. There were things in our local procession that did not, one might even reverently say could not, occur in the London procession. One of the most prominent citizens in our procession, for instance, had his face blackened. Another rode on a pony which wore pink and blue trousers. I was not present at the Metropolitan Affair, and therefore my assertion is subject to such a correction as the eyewitness may always offer to the absentee but I believe with some firmness that no such features occurred in the London pageant. But it is not of the local celebration that I would speak, but of something that occurred before it. In the field beyond the end of my garden, the materials for a bonfire had been heaped, a hill of every kind of rubbish and refuge and things that nobody wants, broken chairs, dead trees, rags, shavings, newspapers, new religions in pamphlet form, reports of the Eugenic Congress, and so on. All this refuse material and mental, it was our purpose to purify and change to a holy flame on the day when the king was crowned. The following is an account of the rather strange thing that really happened. I do not know whether it was any sort of symbol, but I narrate it just as it befell. In the middle of the night I woke up slowly and listened to what I supposed to be the heavy crunching of a cartwheel along a road of loose stones. Then it grew louder, and I thought someone was shooting out cartloads of stones. Then it seemed as if the shock was breaking big stones into pieces. Then I realized under this sound that 
that there was also a strange, sleepy, almost inaudible roar, and that on top of it every now and then came pygmy pops like a battle of penny pistols. Then I knew what it was. I went to the window, and a great firelight flung across two meadows, smoked me where I stood. Oh, my holy aunt, I thought, they've mistaken the coronation day. And yet when I eyed the transfigured scene, it did not seem exactly like a bonfire or any ritual illumination. It was too chaotic and too close to the houses of the town. All one side of a cottage was painted pink with the giant brush of the flame. The next side, by contrast, was painted as black as tar. Along the front of this ran blackening rim or rampart edge with a restless red ribbon that danced and doubled and devoured like a scarlet snake, and beyond it was nothing but a deathly fullness of light. I put on some clothes and went down the road. All the dull or startling noises in that din of burning, growing louder and louder as I walked. The heaviest sound was that of an incessant cracking and crunching, as if some giant with teeth of stone was breaking up the bones of the world. I had not yet come within sight of the real heart and habitat of the fire, but the strong red light, like an unnatural midnight sunset, powdered the grayest grass with gold and flushed the few tall trees up to the last fingers of their foliage. Behind them the night was black and cavernous, and one could only trace faintly the ashen horizon beyond the dark and magic Wilton woods. As I went, a workman on a bicycle shot a rude past me, then staggered from his machine and shouted to me to tell him where the fire was. I answered that I was going to see, but I thought it was the cottages by the woodyard. He said, My God, and vanished. A little farther on I found grass and pavement soaking and flooded, and the red and yellow flames repainted in pools and puddles. Beyond were dim huddles of people and a small distant voice shouting out orders. The fire engines were at work. I went on among the red reflections, which seemed like subterranean fires. I had a singular sensation of being in a very important dream. Oddly enough, this was increased when I found that most of my friends and neighbors were entangled in the crowd. Only in dreams do we see familiar faces so vividly against the black background of midnight. I was glad to find, for the workman's cyclist's sake, that the fire was not in the houses by the woodyard, but in the woodyard itself. There was no fear for human life, and the thing was seemingly accidental though there were the usual ugly whispers about rivalry and revenge. But for all that I could not shake off my dream-drugged soul, a swollen, tragic, portentous sort of sensation, that it all had something to do with the crowning of the English king, and the glory or the end of England. It was not till I saw the puddles and the ashes in broad daylight next morning that I was fundamentally certain that my midnight adventure had not happened outside this world. But I was more arrogant than the ancient emperors, Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar, for I attempted to interpret my own dream. The fire was feeding upon solid stacks of unused beech or pine, gray and white piles of virgin wood. It was an orgy of mere waste. Thousands of good things were being killed before they had ever existed. Doors, tables, walking sticks, wheelbarrows, wooden swords for boys, Dutch dolls for girls. I could hear the cry of each uncreated thing as it expired in the flames. And then I thought of that other noble tower of needless things, 
that stood in the field beyond my garden, the bonfire, the mountain of vanities that is meant for burning, and how it stood dark and lonely in the meadow, and the birds hopped on its corners, and the dew touched and spangled its twigs. And I remembered that there are two kinds of fires, the bad fire and the good fire. The last must surely be the meaning of bonfire, and the paradox is that the good fire is made of bad things, of things that we do not want. But the bad fire is made of good things, of things that we do want, like all the wealth of wood that might have made dolls and chairs and tables, but was making only a hueless ash. And then I saw in my vision that just as there are two fires, so there are two revolutions. And I saw that the whole mad modern world is a race between them. Which will happen first, the revolution in which the bad things shall perish, or that other revolution in which good things shall perish also? One is the riot that all good men, even the most conservative, really dream of, when the sneer shall be struck from the face of the well-fed, when the wine of honour shall be poured down the throat of despair, when we shall, so far as to the sons of flesh is possible, take tyranny and usury and public treason, and bind them into bundles and burn them. And the other is the disruption that may come prematurely, negatively, and suddenly in the night, like the fire in my little town. It may come because the mere strain of modern life is unbearable, and in it even the things that men do desire may break down, marriage and fair ownership and worship and the mysterious worth of man, the two revolutions, white and black, are racing each other like two railway trains. I cannot guess the issue, but even as I thought of it, the tallest turret of the timber stooped and faltered and came down in a cataract of noises, and the fire, finding passage, went up with a spout like a fountain. It stood far up among the stars for an instant, a blazing pillar of brass fit for a pagan conqueror, so high that one could fancy it visible away among the goblin trees of Burnham or along the terraces of the Chiltern Hills. The Free Man The idea of liberty is ultimately a religious root. That is why men find it so easy to die for and so difficult to define. It refers finally to the fact that while the oyster and the palm tree have to save their lives by law, man has to save his soul by choice. Ruskin rebuked Coleridge for praising freedom and said that no man would wish the sun to be free. It seems enough to answer that no man would wish to be the sun. Speaking as a liberal, I have much more sympathy with the idea of Joshua stopping the sun in heaven than with the idea of Ruskin trotting his daily round in imitation of its regularity. Joshua was a radical, and his astronomical act was distinctly revolutionary. For all revolution is the mastering of matter by the spirit of man, the emergence of that human authority within us, which, in the noble words of Sir Thomas Brown, owes no homage unto the sun. Generally, the moral substance of liberty is this, that man is not meant merely to receive good laws, good food, or good conditions, like a tree in a garden, but is meant to take a certain princely pleasure 
in selecting and shaping like the gardener. Perhaps that is the meaning of the trade of Adam. And the best popular words for rendering the real idea of liberty are those which speak of man as a creator. We use the word make about most of the things in which freedom is essential as a country walk or a friendship or a love affair. When a man makes his way through a wood he has really created. He has built a road like the Romans. When a man makes a friend he makes a man. And in the third case we talk of a man making love as if he were, as indeed he is, creating new masses and colors of that flaming material, an awful form or manufacture. In its primary spiritual sense, liberty is the god in man, or if you like the word, the artist. In its secondary political sense, liberty is the living influence of the citizen on the state, in the direction of molding or deflecting it. Men are the only creatures that evidently possess it. On the one hand, the eagle has no liberty. He only has loneliness. On the other hand, ants, bees, and beavers exhibit the highest miracle of the state, influencing the citizen, but no perceptible trace of the citizen influencing the state. You may, if you like, call the ants a democracy, as you may call the bees a despotism. But I fancy that the architectural ant who attempted to introduce an art nouveau style of an ant hill would have a career as curt and fruitless as the celebrated bee who wanted to swarm alone. The isolation of this idea in humanity is akin to its religious character, but it is not even in humanity by any means equally distributed. The idea that the state should not only be supported by its children, like the anthill, but should be constantly criticized and reconstructed by them, is an idea stronger in Christendom than any other part of the planet, stronger in Western than Eastern Europe, and touching the pure idea of the individual being free to speak and act within limits, the assertion of this idea, we may fairly say, has been the peculiar honor of our own country. For my part, I greatly prefer the jingoism of rural Britannia to the imperialism of the recessional. I have no objection to Britannia ruling the waves. I draw the line when she begins to rule the dry land, and such damnably dry land, too, as in Africa. And there was a real old English sincerity in the vulgar chorus that Britons never shall be slaves. We had no equality and hardly any justice, but freedom we were really fond of. And I think, just now, it is worthwhile to draw attention to the old optimistic prophecy that Britons never shall be slaves. The mere love of liberty has never been at a lower ebb in England than it has been for the last twenty years. Never before has it been so easy to slip small bills through Parliament for the purpose of locking people up. Never was it so easy to silence awkward questions or to protect high-placed officials. Two hundred years ago we turned out the Stuarts rather than endanger the Habeas Corpus Act. Two years ago we abolished the Habeas Corpus Act rather than turn out the Home Secretary. We passed a law which is now in force that an Englishman's punishment shall not depend upon judge and jury, but upon the governors and jailers who have got hold of him. But this is not the only case. The scorn of liberty is in the air. A newspaper is seized by the police in Trafalgar Square 
without a word of accusation or explanation. The Home Secretary says that in his opinion the police are very nice people, and that there is an end of the matter. A member of Parliament attempts to criticize a peerage. The Speaker says he must not criticize a peerage, and there the matter drops. Political liberty, let us repeat, consists in the power of criticizing those flexible parts of the state which constantly require reconsideration. Not the basis, but the machinery. In plainer words, it means the power of saying the sort of things that a decent but discontented citizen wants to say. He does not want to spit on the Bible, or run about without clothes, or read the worst page in Zola from the pulpit of St. Paul's. Therefore, the forbidding of these things, whether just or not, is only tyranny in a secondary and special sense. It restrains the abnormal, not the normal man. But the normal man, the decent, discontented citizen, does want to protest against unfair law courts. He does want to expose brutalities of the police. He does want to make game of a vulgar pawnbroker who is made a peer. He does want publicity to warn people against unscrupulous capitalists and suspicious finance. If he is run in for doing this, as he will be, he does want to proclaim the character or known prejudices of the magistrate who tries him. If he is sent to prison, as he will be, he does want to have a clear and civilized sentence telling him when he will come out. And these are literally and exactly the things that he now cannot get. That is the almost cloying humor of the present situation. I can say abnormal things in modern magazines. It is the normal things that I am not allowed to say. I can write in some solemn quarterly and elaborate article explaining that God is the devil. I can write in some cultured weekly an aesthetic fancy describing how I should like to eat boiled baby. The thing I must not write is rational criticism of the men and institutions of my country. The present condition of England is briefly this, that no Englishman can say in public a twentieth part of what he says in private. One cannot say, for instance, that, but I am afraid I must leave out that instance, because one cannot say it. I cannot prove my case, because it is so true. End of section 4